Hello guys and welcome to this episode of A Chat With Pat. This episode is brought to you by the wonderful Lido Lada Cafe. Go down and support uh, Wendy and the girls and grab yourself a nice coffee, sweet treat for cash or a sandwich. We absolutely love you guys. On this episode, I am joined by the wonderful Hugh McKay. This was truly a blessing. He's an author, psychologist and social researcher. He digs really deep into this conversation about how we've become the Australia we are today, uh, why we are lonely, uh, resolving the COVID-19 pandemic issues socially, and we dissect a few other uh, little hot topics and discussion points, which I've really, 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 really enjoyed. This was a wonderful episode. I appreciated his time and effort to make his schedule work for me and share his insight and knowledge on this episode of the podcast. I really hope you guys all get something out of this. Um, please look after each other, stay happy, healthy, and do all the best you can to stay safe out there. We're getting through this, guys, and I really love you all because this one truly is a belter. You. Listeners, Snake Edwards on the recorder here. This one's a belter. Uh, welcome to this episode of A Chat with Pat. I'm truly, I guess, grateful and pleased to have um, psychologist, social researcher, author and a great man, Hugh McKay, on the show. Thank you for joining me here. Thank you very much, Pat. Lovely, lovely to be here. <laughs> and we'll just say, and, um, just quickly off air, that you're the first one to do the, the backdrop on Zoom. So congratulations on that milestone. <laughs> yeah. Now, just for the listeners... Um, just to give a quick intro and overview here of um, some of your work and uh, professional background and um, all those kind of things as well. Just give them a little bit of insight, mate, if that's okay. Hmm. Hmm. Yep. Well, I, I, from, from more or less the day I left school, uh, I've been in the public opinion research, social research business. Uh, I did my university studies as an evening student part-time. Uh, which is a tough way to do it, and I don't recommend it to anyone. Um, but that means I've been, it's been about a 60-year career in, in social research, which means a, a big chunk of my professional life has been spent sitting in people's homes, uh, listening to them tell me their stories, uh, you know, their opinions about all sorts of things, ranging from politics to raising kids to what it's like to turn 40 or 20 or to retire or to travel, uh, all sorts of um, subjects. It's been an enormous privilege, really, to have spent so much of my life just hearing people opening up about, about their, their, view of, their view of life and, and the world. Um, so that's been my professional work. And that, of course, involved producing regular research reports. But about 25 years ago, I started writing some of that research in the form of books. Uh, the first one published in 1993 was called Reinventing Australia. Um, and then I've written a series of books mainly about social analysis, but moving on more broadly into um, what it's like to be a human being living on this planet. Um, so in fact, I've written 21 books, uh, including, including some fiction. I love writing novels as well. So there've been eight uh, novels in there um, but that's uh, that's basically what I've done with my life uh, and the writing now I mean I'm no longer sitting in people's lounge rooms <laughs> from that. 
Um, but, but the writing is a way of, uh, of sort of expressing what I've learned and distilled from all those thousands of visits to people's homes. Uh, and I hope, I mean, I, you know, why do I do this? What do I, what do I hope people will get out of it? I, I really hope that people, and, and I'm encouraged to think it's true, that people do enjoy having an analysis of what's going on in society. It helps them to make sense of what's happening to them and to explain why they fear. For example, we've been through uh, enormous periods of upheaval, yeah, social yeah. disruption, et cetera, in the last 60 years. Um, everything from our rate of um, divorce to plummeting birth rate, shrinking households, periods of high unemployment like the present. Uh, it's, you know, when people are going through a lot of social change, it's very disruptive for them and, and it creates high levels of anxiety. And I think it perhaps is helpful for people to get a sense of why this is all happening and why they feel the way they feel. Yeah. And why they're not alone, you know, because we're all going through the same stuff and we're all sharing very similar feelings. And that, that, that's exactly right. And I feel that a lot of your work would also be very much important, especially in this current climate. And you mentioned one key word that I'd love to discuss with you is alone and loneliness. Um, yes. In Australia, there was a report done, I think, well, one in four Australians report themselves to be lonely. And this was even before the pandemic. Yes. I mean... What do you attribute to that? I mean, this is, yeah. it's, it's much of an epidemic and I feel it's going to be the greater consequence from everything going on now, to be honest. Yeah. Why are we becoming so lonely in modern Australia? Mm. Well, it's an enormous question, Pat, but I think, <laughs> I think we can answer it. And, I, um, and that research is very important. I mean, it was done by the Australian Psychological Society and Swinburne University. And exactly as you say, 25% of Australians reported feeling lonely for most of every week. You know, that's a really frightening figure. So to take to understand that, I think we just take a step back to acknowledge that, that we're human beings and that human beings belong to a social species. Like many other of the species on planet Earth, uh, we're a species that thrives when we're together in families, in communities, in neighbourhoods, in friendship circles, in workplace groups, all that. We're, we're group people, we're herd animals. And when social beings or herd animals are cut off from the herd, they suffer. Uh, in our criminal justice system, solitary confinement is the worst punishment we can think of uh, to inflict on a prisoner. Uh, and that's because that is the worst punishment for a member of a social species. Uh, it does bring out the worst in us. It does create feelings of anxiety and depression and, and other physical consequences that go with uh, social isolation, like increased hypertension, um, increased inflammation, cognitive decline, disturbed sleep, uh, increased risk of addiction. There's a long list of things that go along with um, being cut off from the herd. So why, to come right back to your question, why has that become such a problem for contemporary Australia? Well, if you look at the way our society has been changing, particularly over the last 25 or 30 years, you're looking at a society that's become more and more socially fragmented. And things that have done that to us are things like our high rate of 
marriage breakdown. Between 35 and 40% of marriages are now ending in divorce. Uh, our shrinking households. The typical Australian household 100 years ago was uh, three generations living under one roof and, you know, probably five or six or seven um, people altogether. Now, uh, the average Australian household is 2.5 people, tiny. That's, that's not a domestic herd. That's too small to be a herd. Uh, but the fastest growing household type, which is already a quarter of all our households, the fastest growing household type is the single person household. In other words, in every fourth household around Australia, there's just one person living alone. Now, all those people are not necessarily lonely, yeah. but their risk of loneliness is much increased. Now, just, just before we leave that topic, there are a few other things that have contributed to greater social fragmentation and increased isolation. Um, I've mentioned the shrinking households. Uh, I've mentioned the rate of relationship breakdown. The falling birth rate is a factor here, Pat, because um, anyone who's a parent knows if you move into a new neighbourhood, it's usually the kids who get to know each other first. Yeah. And gradually the networks build up and the parents get to know each other and so on. Now, we're, we're in a situation where we're living with the lowest birth rate we've ever had we're producing relative to total population, the smallest generation of kids mm. we've ever had, which means that the social lubricant that kids provide is in very short supply. Add to that the fact that we're busier than ever. Everyone wants to tell you how busy they are. In fact, it's even changed the way we greet each other. You know, we, we used to just say, how are you going, all right? Yeah. Now we say, how are you going, Pat, busy? Mm. though come on are you busy or are you dead you know the, <laughs> yeah. the, switch is, the switch has got to be on or off and busyness is a great barrier to social cohesion when we're busy when we're when we're on the treadmill when we're wrapped up in our own activities and particularly our own work to the exclusion of personal relationships and neighborhood contact and you know I, I know they're having a drink you know, the bloke on the corner is having a drink on Friday night Everyone's invited, I can't go, I'm too busy. Well, busyness is a barrier. Busyness is like a shell that we, we, we hide in. I must say uh, uh, And in addition to that, um, we're, more <coughs> we're more mobile than we've ever been. We're moving house on average once every six years. That's hugely socially disruptive. It, it increases the sense of social fragmentation. And the other one that I haven't mentioned, which probably should have been top of the list, is the impact of information technology. We're now more and more inclined to trade off time that we would have spent face-to-face -face in favour of time we spend with our IT devices. Uh, sending messages, sure, exchanging a lot of information, but very, very different from person-to-person -person human contact, which is why in that, in that study you referred to, Pat, uh, that identified the high rate of loneliness, uh, the, the authors talked about the phenomenon of being connected but lonely. And that sounds funny, but it's a very accurate description of it because the highest rates of loneliness are among young people. Yeah. They are typically the heaviest users of social media. And the most connected, but the they're connected. still, yeah. Exactly. So, so you can be highly connected, but 
Connection via information technology doesn't involve eye contact. It doesn't involve all the subtleties and nuances of a face-to-face -face conversation where you can, you know, give someone a sympathetic touch on the arm or something. It just, you know, all that, all that complexity of facial expressions and tone of voice and everything, it's all gone. So the more we, the more we devote our time to information technology, the more at risk we are of social fragmentation. And, and as part of all this, there's a cultural thing that's been happening as well, which is the rise of individualism. We, we've, you know, really, if you, look at, if you look at how Western societies have changed, particularly in the last 50 years, but, but actually it's a, about a 200 year process, but particularly in the last 50 years, we've come to think of ourselves more and more as individuals and less and less as members of a society or a neighborhood uh, or a group of, of some other kind. We think of ourselves more in terms of our identity, which is all about how we're different and unique, uh, instead of thinking about something that's far more significant than our identity, which is our common humanity, which is not how we're different from each other, but how we're similar to each other and how we are actually indivisibly connected. We're all joined by a sort of vibrating web of interconnectedness. <laughs> And we forget that. Uh, and when we forget it, we suffer, not as I mentioned right at the start of this very long answer, That's right. not just mental illness, but physical, the risk of physical illness as well. Yeah. And that narrative is also divisive, that I instead of we. And mm. I think that kind of trickles on into social media, into AI, into technology. Yes. Are you concerned about the impact of technology due to COVID? Do you think this increased reliance on technology is going to be quite dangerous? Yes, I do. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I mean, in the short term, I'm worried about it. In the longer term, I'm not, for reasons I'll explain. Um, but in the short term, yes, the fact that we have had to rely during the lockdown uh, and during a period of such being so cautious and careful. Uh, we've had to rely on um, uh, information technology. There's been no other choice. I mean, we're lucky that we live at this point in history where there is all this brilliant information technology that allows us to settle for second best when we can't have the real thing. But it is second best, and we've had a sort of a mass global experiment in what happens to a population when more people than ever before have had to experience social isolation at the risk of the consequences we've been talking about. Uh, the risk is that we'll slip into the habit. I mean, a lot of people are now saying working from home actually works really well and I'd quite like to keep working from home part of the time. I don't think anyone's gonna say all the time because we know we need each other. We know we do need to eyeball our colleagues and have little corridor conversations and so on. Um, so I don't think that's I don't think it's going to be uh, a total revolution, but I think there is going to be a lot more flexibility. So, um, but I but I I am a great believer in the human spirit and the fact that our sense of what it means to be human, our sense of our common humanity, will prevail. That we will bring ourselves back from the brink of over reliance on information technology, because we'll begin to see, even through the pandemic, we have seen that it is just second best. You can't expect 
that even what you and I are doing with, uh, with Zoom, we, we can see each other, but it's nothing like being in the same room as each other. Uh, and we, we, as we come to realise that, I think our yearning for more face-to-face -face social connection will increase. I mean, one, one other little thing I'd just say as an aside, I think it's absolutely admirable in Australia. It hasn't been like this in a lot of other countries, but in Australia, I think it's absolutely admirable uh, the extent to which we have uh, played by the rules. We have, we have accepted the restrictions on our movement. I, I regard that as a very reassuring sign of the fact that we are actually quite a compassionate society, that we are prepared to make sacrifices in our own uh, way of living short term in the interest of the common good. We're doing this for each other, not just for ourselves. And I think, you know, big tick to Australians who've, who've acted in that way. But of course, the more it goes on, the more we become impatient to hug someone. Or mm. And I, I completely agree with that. I think, you know, for the most part, a lot of people obviously have done the right thing. Today in Victoria, yeah. we had one case. We've you know, we've done much of the right thing and we're moving forward, but there is, I feel that there still is this hounding negative bias yeah. that gets carried around that thinking, you know, the more we lock people in, you know, there's this outlash between before, to the end you know, of this distrust to the politicians who have exacerbated this mental health and isolation. Yeah. What do you say to people like that? And I'm just playing devil's advocate for you that yes. think, yeah, well, well, there's, and then for the, the, the new, the younger generations who can't afford university, who are in a near 7% unemployment rate, you know, I'm, I'm very much like you, I'm an optimistic guy, but there's also this side that we, um, we can't not address. And I loved one of the quotes that you said that the blind optimist rather than the realistic pessimist yes. are the biggest um, damages of our future. I mean, I think yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Do you say that other side? Yeah. Um, I, first of all, I absolutely recognise that people, especially young people who desperately need to be part of a herd, I can understand that as the weeks and then the months go by, uh, their resentment become very hostile towards politicians and even medical officers, officers who are... Uh, laying down the law about what we can do and so on. That, that's all very understandable. But I do think uh, uh, longer term they will realise that this was a sacrifice we had to make and that's why we've got, compared with most of the rest of the world, that's why we've got such a brilliant result in Australia and, and in Victoria now after a second wave, look how successful these measures have been. The other thing I'd say about that, Pat, and I, th I hope it's a useful perspective. Uh, when I reflect on my years of doing research, one of the things that I noticed with older people and the, the generation I'm talking about are now basically dead, they're gone, but it was the, the generation who lived through the Great Depression as young adults. Um, and then they lived through World War II. Some of them had previously lived through the Spanish flu and World War I. I mean, what a, what a quadruple whammy that was. <laughs> you know, in the space of 50 years, two world wars, the Spanish flu. And they didn't get the opportunity to use IT and technology for no. the good. 
no, well. know about infection control. So thousands and thousands, I think, I can't remember the figure, something like 15 or 20,000 Australians were killed by the Spanish flu. Uh, and then the Great Depression. Now, uh, what the reason I mention this is um, that the members of that generation, particularly those who were getting established, raising families, etc., during the Great Depression, they looked back on that and, and almost without exception, they would say that was a terrible period to go through. It was real hardship. People were, you know, helping out other people in the street with who were short of food, a lot of people unemployed and so on. And, you know, it was the making of us uh, because it really clarified our values. It, it reordered our priorities. We could easily work out what really matters when the chips are down. And they said the lessons they learned from the experience of living through the Great Depression never left them. Uh, and I think that's... I hope that will be a source of encouragement, particularly to younger people who are living through all of this at the moment, that it doesn't feel like it when you're in the thicker. It's the same with people who have personal traumas in their own life, a marriage breakdown or a retrenchment, uh, a prolonged period of unemployment like a lot of people are experiencing or a bereavement or some other uh, a serious illness. People say the same thing. It was dreadful when I went through it, but it was very clarifying and I'm glad I had that experience because it helped me to, I mean, I'm amazed at how many older people used to talk about being the lucky generation. And what did they mean by lucky? They meant because they had such a tough time in their early years that that really sort of forged their, their values and uh, their, their view of, of, of how to lead a good life and how to be a good neighbor and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think, we're entitled to feel optimistic in the longer term that the generation who are now doing it really tough, which typically the under 35s are having the toughest time as a result of this pandemic, uh, that's going to turn out to have been a really valuable experience for them, which they won't recognize right now, but they will when they look back on it. I completely agree. And it, it kind of counteracts into that that theory where it's like you know you've got to really experience the deepest of lows to really yes. be grateful for the highest of highs i mean i think yes. back anecdotally for myself in that first lockdown when it kind of came out of it me and my closest mates just hugged each other like it was the most yeah. hormonal releasing thing happiest thing i've ever had and even just the handshake now is a blessing yes with people yes. and after we sanitize and socially distance but <laughs> yes. it's, it's much right. the same is that you know, and I, again, I want to play devil's advocate because there might be listeners here playing who, who are listening to this in our community and might think, well, shit, I've lost a heap. But also there could be that counteract where they can have some optimism. Well, we can almost have this reincarnation of Australia and optimism. Yes. hope that we've got through this tough time. Yeah. Yeah. Look, people have lost a lot of money. People have had to close businesses. I'm not down. And of course, some people have actually contracted the virus and been extremely ill and remain mm. ill for months. And some families have lost, particularly older members uh, who were killed by the virus. So I'm not downplaying any of that at all. Um, but, I, but I would still say um, if you, if you are doing it tough at the moment, be thankful that you're doing it tough in 2020 
because this is a community that understands what doing it tough means. And we have social security provisions and safety nets and all sorts of uh, ways and, and very active charities designed to help people who are yeah. forced to the margins, who are doing it tough. If you were doing it tough in the Great Depression, you didn't have anything like the social... You, you just had to rely on neighbours or family members. I mean, there aren't many countries in the world where you can go into a hospital and receive healthcare straight away. Yes. Like free and little things That's like right. that. And That's right. Yeah, you're very much right. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if we're thinking post-COVID, Hugh, has your concept of, you know, I mean, your great book, which I really think people should buy, Australia Reimagined, has your reimagination of Australia changed during this? Has your concept concept changed? Have you really stuck by that belief? No, I I really have stuck by it. In fact, I I looked back at that book recently because I was looking up something, uh, just some fact that I remembered quoting in that book. Um, And this whole idea that we we grow through pain, that we need, we seem to need crises and catastrophes and traumas to really clarify our values. I was saying that then before the pandemic uh, was on the horizon. Uh, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's such a general principle about human nature. As you said, you know, we, we only appreciate the highs because we've had the lows. And people who think uh, that, that, that life is all about pursuing happiness and that the default position for people is to be happy all the time and there's something wrong with you if you're not happy, that's just crazy. Absolutely crazy. I mean, I mean, we'd only know what happiness is because we've experienced sadness. Uh, you have to experience failure, disappointment, loss in order to understand the positive, bright, shiny experiences that you have. And it's not always easy to remember that. But I think it's helpful to remember when you're going through a dark, difficult period that this is teaching you something about who you are about your values and about what it means to be a human being that that are far more powerful lessons than you'll ever learn from little periods of bliss and euphoria and happiness and everything going swimmingly. When things don't go swimmingly for anyone all the time and just as well. I mean, I think actually it's an interesting, it's an interesting point that you raise, Pat, because I think one of the reasons why we have been, some, some of us have been so kind of restless and cranky and, and even uh, angry and resentful about the restrictions imposed on us by COVID-19 is that we have had such a dream run. I mean, this, this is a country that's had, t- until now, 28 years of continuous economic growth uh, now, so, and that sort of lulls us into a very dangerous, uh, complacent sort yeah. of state, as though we think, "Oh, look, we're fine. We're we just, you know, the escalator keeps going up. We're all going." She'll to- be right. She'll be right. She'll be right. <laughs> and of course, it's never like that. There's always, whether it's an individual's life or a society, there are always going to be periods of turbulence and disruption. And this is a graphic reminder of that. Yeah. yeah. And. Well, and exactly, you know, right. I mean, but, and then do you think that as we go through, so as our generations develop and as we build that the, the Australian good life will ultimately be changed, interchanged and, and 
develops into a different sense or do you think it always will come down to you know the the way and you know knowing your neighbor and yeah i think it will yeah, I, I think um, I mean one of, one of a couple of interesting things that have happened during the pandemic. One is we've sort of welcomed government back into our lives. You know, we're always talking about let keep the government out of our life and uh, let's get on with it. The sort of free market kind of mentality. And now suddenly, when there's a crisis and we need guidance and we need support, we've welcomed. Uh, federal and state and territory governments back in to offer us leadership and reassurance and to make sure that people are not falling through the cracks and so on. So government is back, but the neighbourhood is also back, Pat. I, I, right, at, right in the beginning of the pandemic, I was uh, doing a webinar uh, with, a, with a group of people and we had a little, after I'd given a talk and uh, there was a bit of discussion. We we went into little breakout groups the way yeah. it allows us to. And I found myself in a group just with two young blokes, uh, both in their 20s, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. And by coincidence, they had both recently moved into a new suburb, a new street. They were both living alone and they didn't know anyone. And their first reaction uh, when the lockdown started was to put a little note in the letterbox of everyone in their street to say, hi, I'm new here, you know, my name's Pat or whatever it is. Um, if, there's, if you need any help with anything, you know, mowing your lawn or doing shopping or picking up prescriptions or anything, I'm here, you know, just give us a buzz. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? His two young um, single blokes whose first reaction in a crisis like that is to say, gee, I wonder if any of the people in my street need a hand. And I think a lot of people have paid more attention to the street, to the immediate neighbourhood, than they have. It had become a bit of a cliche in our big cities, Sydney <laughs> in particular, it had become a bit of a cliche for people to say, oh, we don't know our neighbours. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes wave to the bloke next door, but I couldn't tell you his name and people on the other side we never see each other um, and no one has ever said that with pleasure they've always said that as though they realize they're saying something weird isn't it a weird thing not to know your neighbor you know we live right next door to each other well i think crises like the pandemic have caused us to bring the focus right down bring the horizon up close uh, when the chips are down there's me and there's the other people in this street and there's that old lady at the end of the street who looks pretty frail and I've never said hello to her. I probably should say hello to her, see if she needs a hand or um, it, it, it's brought out. I, I think we, we've, it relates to something we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, Pat, but I think we had been in danger of forgetting what it means to be a neighbour. And I, I think we'd forgotten that an important part of being a citizen is to be a neighbour. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, if you want to judge the health of a society, if you want to judge the health of a nation, start with the health of local neighbourhoods. If the streets are working, if people in apartment blocks are saying good day to each other and looking out for each other, that is a sign of a, of a healthy neighbourhood and put enough healthy neighbourhoods together and you've got a healthy society when we become more individualised and more socially fragmented and we avoid eye contact with each other and we forget 
that we actually have a responsibility for each other because we're humans who belong to this social species, that's when we're in trouble. What do you think about this, um, I guess, population and that's probably come into light um, in relation to our governments who have had faced a lot of pressure, it wouldn't be a job. What do you think about this, I guess, I hate saying using the word extreme, but using this uh, other end of the spectrum population that has kind of developed this hate, for lack of a better term, for the imposed lockdowns, like the Andrews government has probably faced down here. Mm. What Mm. would you say, I guess, to that population? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, Mm. there there is, like, we we can't push that away. There is a population of people here in Victoria who have their own opinions on the Andrews government the way he has developed things. Yeah. What well, absolutely right. Yeah. But I, mean, really, I mean, it has to be much more to these people than, you know, just be a good neighbour. I mean, I completely agree. I'm, I'm optimistic. I love community. I love people. I love the human race. And I believe that such things and such little acts can go much past the politics that we elect. Yeah. What do you say to that population? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say we are talking about a minority uh, in the states where there's been quite strict lockdowns and border closing. I mean, Victoria is certainly the most extreme example at the moment, but Western Australia and Queensland, in all of those states, generally speaking, uh, the, the public opinion research on the subject shows us that the population is overwhelmingly in favour of these tough restrictions. The people who really resent them, the people who, as you use the word hate, and I think that's true, folk, and, and of course, Daniel Andrews has been getting hate mail, uh, one kind or another. He had his office spray painted the other day, I think. Yeah, yeah. And death threats and all that sort of stuff. Now, that that is an example to us of what it's like for a herd animal who is cut off from the herd. We do behave badly. And there is a mental health problem that definitely arises when you have big chunks of the population who are normally socialising, unable to socialise. Now, all we can say to those people is, look, we're making this sacrifice for society at large. We're making this sacrifice for the common good. And if it's really getting you down, don't go spray painting the Premier's office. Get in touch with a social worker. Get in touch with a health professional. Ring up Lifeline. Uh, get it off your chest. Sort it out because it's a completely natural response, but it's a very unhealthy response. And so, I mean, our mental health services are brilliant. Not enough of them, but they're brilliant okay. nevertheless. Uh, and things like Lifeline... 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for someone to pick up the phone and say, look, I'm beside myself with anger about what the government's doing. To have, have the opportunity to talk that through is, is, a, great, is, is a great healer. Um, but, but So the, the feelings are understandable, but they're kind of self-destructive. I mean, if like anger usually is. Yeah. If you're getting really angry. That means your system is a bit out of control and the, the ultimate victim of your anger is yourself. And exactly right. And you're almost contributing to that problem. Yes. Where yes. your anger is filtering out into society and you're becoming that I, you know, and that pack mentality. Yes. It's not really getting any closer to the solution that you may want. <laughs> no. Oh, no, quite the reverse. Yeah. Slowing, slowing the process down, yes. 
That's yeah. Right. Then what is the good life? I mean, is it's you know it's quite a. I, know, I mean, you've been so used to it in your work. I mean, mm. when people may hear that term, they may think, you know, this is Australian act. You know, what is that? You know, I'm just going to take it easy and you know, yeah. who cares? She'll be right attitude. Yeah. How do we live the good life, you? Even yeah. especially in a time where things are bad. What, yeah. what does that mean to you? Well, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Good Life. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I acknowledge that in Australia, when we say The Good Life, we, because we've been through a rather hedonistic, individualistic phase in our cultural development, we tend to mean having a good time, you know, partying like there's no tomorrow or, you know, cashing in your super and retiring to the coast and... Uh, yeah, there's this big narrative up. about that where we get to retirement and then we can't kick our feet up. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. So that's not what I think. Of. I think of the good life... I focus on that word good. I think of the good life as a life characterised by goodness. Uh, a, a good life is a life that brings us deep life satisfaction. And where does deep life satisfaction come from? Now we're getting we're getting into deep water here, Pat. Yeah. <laughs> but good deep life satisfaction does not come from being happy or from going to parties or from putting your feet up or from uh, spending your life at the beach. All of those things are terrific, and we all need to do those things. But deep life satisfaction comes from a completely different approach to life from that. Uh, satisfaction comes from giving, from responding to the needs of other people and from acting compassionately. I, I think the more I've thought about the good life and the more I've thought about Australia during the pandemic, the more interested I become in this word compassion and the concept of compassion. Um, uh, Gandhi, the great Mahatma Gandhi, uh, once said, if you the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And that, that quote has intrigued me for years. And yet, the more I think about it, the more I think there's very deep wisdom in that. Because we are members of a social species, uh, goodness for us is nurturing the species, engaging with the community, the neighbourhood, the extended family, people in need, uh, et cetera. And that calls on, because, the, because we do belong to an essentially a, a, a cooperative social species, the one quality we need to be fully paid up members of that species, fully functioning, deeply satisfied, good members of that species, the one quality we need is compassion. And what I mean by, and luckily, that's the, the one quality we all have. <laughs> so if you go deep inside yourself, uh, what you discover is your common humanity. And you discover that you do have this extraordinary human quality, which is being able to show kindness, respect, compassion, towards anybody, towards total strangers. Isn't this an incredible thing? Someone you have no connection with, someone you don't know, 
but that person needs your kindness or needs your generosity or your compassion, and you have the capacity to show it. We have the capacity, and this again, I think is, is a remarkable thing about humans. We have the capacity to show compassion towards people we don't like. We have the capacity to show compassion towards people we disagree with furiously about politics or religion or uh, the lockdown or whatever it might be. In fact, the best way to define compassion, I think, is to say it's the, it's the one form of human love that doesn't involve emotion. It's the one form of human love that is not about affection. When we think about romantic love or familial love or the love of friendship, we're talking about emotion. We're talking about affection. But compassion, this unique, brilliant human quality that we're blessed with, we're born with, allows us to show kindness even towards people we don't like. Uh, Samuel Johnson the 18th century English essayist, etc., had a wonderful line, which was, we are capable of kindness even when we're not capable of fondness. In other words, I, th I think the breakthrough in living the good life, the breakthrough in understanding what it really means to be human and the breakthrough in unlocking the deepest possibilities for a satisfying life is when we understand that we can all embrace, adopt the discipline of being compassionate in every encounter we make, day to day, uh, whoever we're dealing with, friend, neighbor, stranger, uh, lunatic, <laughs> whoever we encounter, we are, because we're human, at our best, we're capable of showing compassion in every, not easy, we don't always want to do it, but we have that capacity and that's the absolute, for me, that's the absolute essence of the good life. Once we've adopted that, we get what the good life is all about. It goes on to that saying where, you know, no one is born to hate, you know, we don't yeah, born exactly. learning to hate. You know, yeah, we, we have to learn to hate, but we don't have to learn yeah. to be kind. That's absolutely in our nature. Yeah. And then you look back with the Australian population, I mean, think this one thing that I hope we remember soon. Yes, there is a lot of hate and it's worthy to feel that way. And people have gone through some tough things. But, you know, we are one of the most giving nations in the world. Yes. We donate to charities so much. Mm. Um, you know, we're built on this. You know this fair go attitude, which is beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Yes. You know, we've oh, all got the opportunity to do things yes. if we really set our mind to it, if we really want to do it. And yeah. I know I think it's something that really needs to be brought back into light in amongst all this. And you know, like you know, and you know, it's a fight. It's a fight here. You're completely right to be compassionate all the time. I mean, yeah. I'm probably lucky to have a view as a social worker where you get the um, the indulgence of into people's deepest thoughts and experiences. And, yes. Um, I think it's something that we can all, we do have, we do genuinely have compassion where it's like, well, I'm not going to say this thing about this person because we're all going through crap. Like, we're all going through this stuff at the end of the day, right. whether it's yeah. whether we like it or not. And that compassion is something I hope you know, we can, you know, we saw it with the um, community in the buildings in Melbourne with the um, commission units, yes. the, the food drops. Yep, exactly. So quickly, we exactly. so quickly forget this. Yeah, that's right. We didn't know those people, 
but we knew they needed supplies, so we just got got into it. Yeah. Uh, what happened in the bushfires? You know, did yeah. people say, "Oh, you know, the poor, you know, poor buggers, uh, bad luck"? I'm glad I'm not in a bushfire area. No, we gave generously. We helped out in any way we could, whether it was money or food or uh, giving people somewhere to stay if their house has been burnt down. I mean, nobody was left hungry. Nobody was left homeless in that situation. It does bring out the best in us. And so I think the challenge, Pat, is to say, well, let's not wait for a bushfire. Let's not wait for a pandemic. Let's not yeah. wait for a crisis or a catastrophe. Let's recognise that all of us can, can be humans at their best. Now, you know, I'm not naive enough to think we're going to be like that all the time. And by the way, it doesn't mean that we've got to be out there 24-7 being compassionate. In order to be a fully functioning, good human, a good member of this species, a good cooperative neighbour, etc. we've got to have time off. We've got to have time to ourselves. We've got to go and meditate or walk or swim or uh, you know, lie in a hammock and read a book or you know, do, do something, uh, sing. Do something that's I, for us. I had um, threat and stress response um, scientist Dan Cooper, he was in the special forces and he yes. talked about the ability, the bigger, the best, the most, I guess, happiest and connected tribes in the world were the ones who had the ability to take time for themselves and do exactly. nothing and do exactly. absolutely nothing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then we talked on it before about that busyness about, Oh, we've got to meet the man. We've got to move on. We've got to be seen to be yeah. doing stuff. We get this social yeah. media message where this person's he's killing it. He's doing so much. And that's the dangers, but really just being with yourself, learning to be with yourself and your thoughts is one of the biggest, yeah. biggest and beautiful things and compassion yeah, and I, for yourself think, you can do. Yeah, I think that it's it's a really important point and, and I think the correct perspective on it is not to think this is self-indulgent, but to think I actually need this to replenish my resources if I'm going to be a good guy in the community. That's very, it's very demanding being a human it's very demanding being a member of a cooperative species, very demanding finding the reserves of compassion. Yeah, compassion. Yeah. I need time every day to recharge the batteries. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, compassion fatigue, which yeah. I've felt numerous times. Certainly such a thing. Yeah. Do you, um, I mean, we see now there's this greater value for money now, this, I guess, somewhat capitalist society, and I want to touch on happiness and the good life. Yes. Can money truly buy happiness in some stores? I mean, it's a great topic that we talk about and, you know, we can buy these things, but it's funny. I've had this discussion with a mate that, you know, you can buy your things that kind of contribute to your happiness, but is it really happiness itself? Like, yes. buy this house, which means I'm not homeless and I'd rather, I'd be happy not homeless. Yes. But um, I just kind of think about this topic where we're growing into this, you know, capitalist, and we're real building an economy now where money is so important. Yeah. Truly contributed to our happiness significantly. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating question, Pat. And, and there's this old saying, you know, people who say money doesn't buy happiness don't know where to shop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's no doubt that if you buy a new car or, uh, you know, a new shirt or a new handbag or, you know, whatever it is, you get a little kick out of that. You know, there's, a, there's the consumerist 
the retail therapy. That's real therapy. It's very, very short-lived. It's hormonal response almost. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So, um, but I think everything we know about what it means to be human and what brings us the deepest satisfaction in life tells us that it's not the material stuff. So probably the thing to change is the word happiness. Um, money can buy happiness in the short term. It can buy you little bursts of euphoria, but you can't be happy all the time. I mean, if you were happy all the time, you'd be, you'd be an emotional wreck. You know, <laughs> there's not. You've got to have the contrast. But what? Uh, so money can buy you little, little, little therapeutic moments, little, little bursts of bliss and pleasure, and so on. But what it can't buy you is a sense of meaning in your life. What it can't buy you is the deep sense of satisfaction that comes from giving rather than getting. And money is all about getting. Uh, and that's, that's a, it's a dead end. So, yeah, it works. You can say, oh, yes, money buys me happiness because I love my new car. I'm happy when I get in it. Sure. Uh, but ha but your life isn't the meaning of your life isn't in the extent to which your happiness uh, that you're happy. The meaning of your life is in the extent to which you're experiencing great satisfaction. I, I saw some very interesting research published a few years ago by a Harvard researcher in the US uh, saying that parents are often at their happiest when they are away from their kids, uh, but that generally speaking, the deepest sense of meaning in their lives comes from being a parent. In other words, some of the things that give us our richest experiences, our richest sense of meaning and satisfaction don't necessarily make us happy or not happy all the time. Raising kids can be a real struggle. Being married can be really hard work. Uh, being in a long-term relationship requires all sorts of discipline and compromise and accommodation so on. It's not all about being happy. Uh, so I think if we change the word, when people say, can money buy happiness? Well, yes, in the short term, but is that what you want? What it can't buy is a meaningful, satisfying life. Exactly right. It's that, it's that depth. It's that, it's almost like, you know, your level of happiness is still going to be the same somewhat. If, you know, that happiness unmeasurable almost you've got to, still going to feel the same amount of happiness whether it's with you know with a friend hanging out for some beers or whether you pay it off that car you know it's mm. that depth and that meaningfulness mm. um that happiness now sure. you know I'll, I'll play you know devil's advocate again for people the listeners but almost I'm, i'd like to ask you why do you do all this amazing work like you know i could only imagine that you know, you may not, you know, you've had an amazing career. You've, we, Australian people and the people that read your books and your research owe a great debt to you, Hugh. But, you know, you may not necessarily be around in, in years and 10, 20 years to combat all these things. You know, if I'm mm. honest, um, it's, I'd like to say, well, you know, what, what, why do you do this? You know, what's the greatest, <laughs> you know, it's amazing stuff. And I think people need to yeah. hear the insights of your amazing work, but, you know, it's almost like it's so unselfish, but why do you do this amazing work? Well, well, it's very kind of you to say amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's just the work I do. Um, and I certainly won't be around in 20 years. Yeah. Be, I hope I'll be around in 10, but maybe not. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm 
well into my 80s, so you don't go on forever. Um, but uh, I do this because, um, and I still try to be a good neighbour and a good husband and a good father and all those things, but I really do think that it's worthwhile trying to help people make sense of what's happening to them. And when I'm gone, there'll be, you know, a hundred other researchers doing the same thing. There are lots of people doing it now. And of course, it's one of the reasons why I've written the books I've written that I hope they'll hang around for a while. So when someone says, you know, what really is a good life? You'll be able to say, well, funny you should ask me that. Here's a book on the subject. You know, the bloke is long since dead, but the <laughs> books are still kicking around and there's some useful stuff in there. So I just, uh, you know, to, uh, probably a faint hope, but I do hope some of the material will hang around. And when people have, have been influenced by a bit of social analysis or explanation or, an, you know, a, a description of what we've just been talking about, what the good life is and so on, I think that influence goes on. You know, I, I don't have grand ambitions for what will be left after I've gone, but I do cling to the idea that people I've influenced either directly or through my writing or public speaking, some of those people at some point in the future might get a flicker of recollecting something that I've said and it might positively influence their life or help them through a difficult patch or to understand why they're feeling blue or uh, anxious or whatever it might be. Yeah. That, that, that would be, you know, that would be uh, a brilliant, um, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. That would be the best I could hope for. And that understanding is um, just as valued as much as having these discussions, you know. I think it. I think there's a great value in doing this and, you know, even though it is virtual, but yes. opening up your own perspective to someone else's, there is great value and understanding in that that can lead to greater compassion and development for our own society. I mean, I think it's something that we should never, ever, ever take for granted. Again. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yes. Yes. You, yes. Hugh, oh, I know you said you had to get around at plus 3.30, but I really appreciate you coming on this episode. I think we'll wrap it up there. I want to thank you. Um, been a blessing having you on. I think a lot of people will get a lot out of this here. That's very kind. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much, Pat. Thank you. All the best. I'll have Thank a great day. Cheers. Thank you. And you too. How about that for an episode, guys? I hope you all really enjoyed that one. A quick shout out to my man, Michael Peters, the man behind the camera. And also big, big love to 3RPC for allowing us to utilize the studio space. Without you guys, none of this would be possible. So big thank you. Please make sure you all follow at a chat with Pat on Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast via Spotify and iTunes. And please don't be afraid to leave a review. We are open to all feedback to make this as good as possible for all our listeners. Stay safe and all my love, guys. You.